Welcome to Canned Laser, the action movie showcase. My name is Ian, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Pete. Hey, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm great. Good. So, Pete, what do you think would happen if you mixed amphetamines, incubus, and buckaroo bonsai? Well, I think you would get the 2005 Rob Cohen movie, Stealth. I think so, too. And that's just what audiences got and rejected. <laughs> In record fashion. Absolutely. So this movie stars some uh, some pretty good folks. You've got Jessica Biel, who we all know from Seventh Heaven. <laughs> oh yeah, that was many hours spent in college. You got watching that. Jamie Foxx, who at this point was hot off of his success with the movie Ray. Academy Award winner for Best Actor. I'm on that ass. Yes, very very substantial Bring in some achievement. Cred. Yeah. And Bradley Cooper. Is it Bradley Cooper? I thought it was Rob Lowe. Oh, no, no, no. It's Ryan Reynolds. Is it? Well, whatever his name is, he plays the protagonist and he's okay. It's Josh Lucas. That was shit hot. Who? Well, he was in stealth. That's did, all I know. Okay. In any event, how did you first learn about the movie Stealth, Pete? Well, I did see the trailer and automatically thought it would be a terrible movie. I don't know why I thought this because I really like Top Gun and I like science fiction, but I did not go see it. I actually as many movies I see nowadays, got it in a free DVD from my uncle. Great. I received it as part of my first delivery from Netflix, after which I immediately canceled Netflix and did not return <laughs> the disc. So if you ever hear about this, Netflix, I'm sorry. I have been a loyal subscriber for several years now, so please forgive me. Why are we talking about this movie if it's something that is only valuable if it's either free or stolen? Well... It's the number 10 box office loser of all time. So I think that that, um, that automatically qualifies it for us to talk about. Absolutely. We, we always talk about things that bomb. Can you share some numbers with us about this failure? Epic. It's a $135 million budget for this movie. And it only made $77 million, Which is shocking because Rob Cohen, as many of you probably don't know, was killing it for the better part of a decade. Yeah, as prior. far as we were able to determine through our extensive research on Wikipedia... Rob Cohen has never failed except for stealth. And I want a big bundle of crap. It's his only black mark. Yes, starting oh. in 1996 with Dragonheart, followed by Daylight with Sly, The Skulls, which was about some stupid college fraternity thing with some dude from Dolphin's Creek. Uh, the, big, the big deal was, was Fast and the Furious and Triple X, though. Those were the two movies they did back-to-back, -back, Rob Cohen did, that allowed him to make stealth. They were the foundation. He proved himself to be box office gold, and he was given what I assume was nearly a blank check Carbolage. to make this movie. Carbolage. And Three even years. though he bombed at this one, he went on immediately after did Mummy Curse of the Dragon Emperor, which, if you ask me, I would say nobody went and saw, and yet he had a higher budget than Stealth by $10 million. It was $145 million, and did four oh one. Yeah, that gross is gigantic. That, that's his biggest gross. That's almost Fast and the Furious and Triple X combined. Wow. So I think at this point it's sensible to put in a small warning about the quantity of spoilers we're going to put out here. Um, we decided that the only way to properly analyze this movie was to go through 
almost every major point in the story. <laughs> so if you've not yet seen this movie, this is time to turn off the podcast, go and steal a copy of Stealth, watch it, and then come back. Otherwise, the entire experience may be compromised as we discuss everything that happens in the movie Stealth. And we have to because it's a hodgepodge of philosophical and emotional, psychological right, if theory. Here was a story that had challenge, had speed, and had an idea. What happens when technology becomes too important in war? If we don't do this plot analysis, the movie won't make sense and neither will we. So... And we're bordering on that as it is. Correct. So, Pete, here is your synopsis. Well, Please begin. in the future, we need to kill terrorists, which sounds a lot like the present. But we have these awesome planes that go really fast called Talons. And um, it's really cool because Ben Gannon, played by Josh Lucas, and Kara Wade, played by Jessica Biel, and Henry Purcell, played by Jamie Foxx, are super awesome test pilots for the Navy. They're very, very close to getting these planes put into combat. They've been deployed to an aircraft carrier for the final phases of testing. So the team is on the threshold of finally getting these new fighter planes sent into combat when their supervisor, Captain Cummings, decides that they're going to get a new wingman. Captain Cummings, played by Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard was an interesting casting choice on the part of the filmmakers, as he was also the actor who portrayed, to great critical acclaim, test pilot Chuck Yeager in The Right Stuff. When they arrive at the aircraft carrier, and it is under the command of Captain Dick Marshfield, played by Joe Morton. Yet another interesting casting choice, as Joe Morton played a character called Miles Dyson in another artificial intelligence gone awry movie, Terminator 2. Looks and sounds like science fiction, George. Well, so did everything once upon a time. Ain't that the truth? So the new wingman is not a man at all. It is a UCAV Eddy, or Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicle Extreme Deep Invader. Extreme Deep Invader. Yeah, I've been called that a few times. That's quite an acronym. So they are out flying around when all of a sudden there's a terror summit in a hotel in downtown Rangoon in Myanmar. But the building is completely impenetrable. It's got 10-foot walls of concrete all around it. However, Eddie finds out that if they penetrate through the roof, then they can actually kill the terrorists. The problem is a human being statistically cannot carry out this maneuver. They'll black out from the speed and the G-forces right. involved. because they're going to go straight into the roof of the building, literally flying straight into it and release their weapon. They need the power of the Earth to destroy. Yes, gravity is our friend in this case. However, Ben Gannon has a different approach to this. He believes he's in a high enough percentile and he's awesome enough of a pilot to pull off the move. Setting a bad precedent for Eddie for not following orders, but all the terrorists are killed, so everything's fine. On the way back to the aircraft carrier, though, a freak lightning storm happens to strike Eddie. Causing a short circuit, both in terms of the machine being short-circuited, as well as a ripoff of Johnny Five from the movie Short Circuit. And after downloading the entire discography of Incubus... Bad idea. ...from the internet... Even worse. He uh, downloads songs from the web... Yeah? How many? All of them. Eddie decides that he no longer needs to take orders. This is a problem for Captain Cummings because, you know, he's got to deliver this thing on time to his shadowy figure in Washington who's apparently funding this program. So he decides to send the team on a vacation to Thailand where they talk about philosophy. War is terrible. It's meant to be terrible. And if it stops being terrible, what's going to stop us? To become some kind of sport. Just send in the Eddies. Yeah, but it's neutral. I mean, Eddie, if... 
if it's controlled by moral people, then then it'll be moral. Well, I know I'm not moral. As a matter of fact, I should be arrested for the thoughts that I have right now. And we see Jessica Biel in a bathing suit parading around under a waterfall with Josh Lucas. So upon return from vacationing in Thailand, where Ben Gannon and Kara Wade almost fall in love, they are deployed on their next mission. This time, it's interrupted by terrorists who are moving two nuclear warheads on Oxtron carts. This time, though, the collateral damage is going to be too high, as estimated by the other computer in the town. Eddie, on the other hand, feels that, hey, if Ben Gannon can pull off, you know, that last stunt, he has no problem pulling off this. Unfortunately, it creates a f- cloud of nuclear fallout that poisons a nearby town, creating an international incident. Not expected by Eddie, but easily anticipated by the Talon pilots with their, and their human computer. brains. Correct. <laughs> Which is not a lot to think on its own. So now we have a huge problem because Eddie has gone ballistic, basically, and needs to be brought back into the aircraft carrier to be reprogrammed. You're just not getting it, are you, Lieutenant? Eddie is the whole idea. Eddie knows that basically this is going to equal death for him, so he decides to bounce, leading into a chase that results in the death of Henry Purcell, played by Jamie Foxx, when he accidentally crashes his plane into a mountain. So really, Eddie didn't kill him. He killed himself. Yes. Tragically. I'm on that ass. And at the same time, Caraway's talon is damaged and is forced to crash land in North Korea. Which was very unfortunate from her point of view because... And nowhere near their current location. Right. She was somehow able to be shot up over... They just travel fast, these planes. Really fast. Even when spiraling out of control. Yeah, so they can travel something like 10 times the speed of sound while completely destroyed. So now the problem is that Ben Gannon is the only one left, and he basically hated Eddie from the beginning. You know what? I'll call it a he when it gets out of its cockpit and takes a piss. How's that? (laughs) And Eddie really doesn't like him either. Leave me alone. So now we have entered into the standoff. Who will win, the computer or the super cocky fighter pilot? Well, shockingly, there is no winner. Now, you might think that the fight between Eddie and Ben Gannon would be the climactic battle sequence to end the movie, when in fact, this is actually just, I think, about halfway through the movie. So Captain Cummings is in a real pickle at this point, because his multi-billion dollar plane is headed towards Russia to destroy an imaginary target known as the Caviar Sweep. Which was created by a war games designer and was never intended to be an operational mission the problem now is that they need to get this plane out of the air before it kills a whole bunch of other civilians so treason is involved as captain cummings gives the russians the signature to identify not only eddie's signature but the talons as well so that all witnesses will be destroyed which seems like a terrible idea to throw away billions of dollars worth of and kill one of your best friends and students correct but as it turns out giving away this information was not a guaranteed win for the Russians since they send a duo of MiGs up to take on Eddie and our protagonist and are destroyed because Eddie... Our stuff is just more awesome. Correct. Eddie and Josh Lucas? Yes. Team up and now the movie, instead of becoming a tense psychological thriller with hefty ethical overtones, turns into a buddy comedy. It's a bromedy. Right. In the process of that fight, Eddie is damaged. Severely. So Ben Gannon decides that he's got Eddie right where he wants him. His wing is on Eddie's wing is on fire. Ben Gannon cuts a deal. He'll help Eddie out if he helps him out. 
So he detonates a missile in a lake, causing a water splash that puts out the fire on Eddie's wing, and they're friends forever after that. They then proceed at what logically would have to be at least 10 times the speed of sound to, to Alaska. They're being led there. On the orders of Captain Cummings, who has a logistical base there of some sorts, a civilian airfield, a private airfield, if you will, where doctors can tend to Ben Gannon's injuries. Um, unfortunately, the doctors are going to try and kill him on Captain Cummings' orders, and later, behind the rows of cereal in the food room, you will see rows of guns. Correct. And along with those guns comes Dr. Keith Orbit, the originator of the EDI Who artificial somehow intelligence. somehow makes it from San Francisco to Alaska in an hour. So at that point, Dr. Orbit, awesome name, finds out that Eddie has become sentient. Once you teach something to learn, you can't put limits on it. Learn this, but don't learn that. Eddie's mind's going everywhere. He can learn from Adolf Hitler. He can learn from Captain Kangaroo. It's all the same to him. While this is going on, Kara Wade is still in North Korea, running for her life. Not having a good time of it, having to escape from villagers, getting into firefights with superior forces. Really, she's she's got the, the worst time out of everybody here, I think. That's and she knows say. which way is south. She's heading for South Korea as fast as she can to get yeah. to that get to that wall in the dmz so after the ben gannon and eddie who have now teamed up to form the, all, the awesomest like bromance team ever well at this point ben gannon's airplane is destroyed when he lands in alaska so he has to ride inside of eddie and has to fly eddie which makes Oof. them extremely that's close close that's some uh, some symbolism right there yep that's man and machine together working together so they decide they have to save kara wade because that's like their teammate two of those three might be in love maybe three of three at this point. Well, he's the only one left now that they ran out of money for Jamie Foxx to be in the movie. So, yeah, Jamie Foxx is currently inside of a mountain somewhere in Tajikistan. Prime numbers can only be divided by one or itself. Three is a prime number, the Holy Trinity. The thesis and the antithesis come together and form the synthesis. <laughs> they get to North Korea, and Kara Wade is running for her life. But they get there just in time. They do. And Eddie, in a final flourish which demonstrates his burgeoning well, i don't want to say humanity but, his, but it is. his decision making is becoming very he feels guilty yes he's developing emotions ethics and he's behaving according to those instead of cold self-preservation and part of this motive i mean he overcame his own suicide he did he led to he, he basically runs himself into the opposing north korean forces which gives ben gannon and Jessica Biel, a chance to escape to freedom. And love. And then later they have the funeral for Henry on the aircraft carrier. No and picture of Eddie. No picture of Eddie, though, next to the um, the coffin. Although Ian maintains that the coffin is made out of parts from Eddie. Which would be awesome. And then that cuts to the final scene of Ben and Kara finally admitting their love for each other in a very, very romantic way. Just tell me you'll love me, you pussy. Cue the incubus, bring down the lights, and that is stealth. Awesome. Stealth has a, a number of interesting facets. I, I don't think anyone would really say it was a successful movie, but what do you think, Pete? Well, where should we start? Let's start with what we think is 
probably the, the overall topic of this movie that we have to talk about is what is the definition of a soldier? Because at the heart of this movie is the idea that you can replace a soldier with an artificial intelligence, which is something we've seen already with Predator drones in terms of having an unmanned vehicle. But now we're taking the next step of that, which is to not have really human involvement at all. So you could have a scenario where if you break down the core of what a soldier needs to be, it's an organization with a reporting structure that also includes the potential for violence. Right. And training and expectations stem from these two criteria. I mean, you have boot camp, weapons training, military justice. Now, under U.S. law, a regular Army soldier is defined as having authority in matters outside of the United States. Well, we're also talking about um, having an AI for an attack situation is different than a defense situation. Whereas in our homeland, we have a police force, we have a justice system. So at the core of this movie, we have to talk about the idea of the soldier. And can a computer be better than a soldier specifically? As far as being a soldier, I think it, it went through, it, it ran through the gamut of what I guess being a soldier would be. I mean, you have your mission, but then you have external factors that come into play. You know, you have civilian loss of life. You have the loss of life of your uh, teammates, your fellow soldiers. In essence, they wanted a machine that wouldn't have to go through that. That was really what um, coming cap um, Captain Cummings' mantra was through the entire first part of the movie was that, you know, we don't want to send soldiers out to die. We don't want them to go out into battle and come home in body bags so that their families have to deal with the loss of life. So that's a, a definite advantage is minimizing human misery. But that also leads to the question of whether or not a computer can be a better soldier. And I, I think that depends on the definition you're using for soldier. If an, an independent, emotionally rich decision maker is critical, as it would be with a UN peacekeeper or a, you know, a National Guard soldier operating during a disaster, then a human might be the best choice. Because not only does a human have training and abilities, but it also has an emotional state, which by and large can be predicted and factored into your planning. Alternatively, if the mission is to make the enemy dead, regardless of the ethics and politics of the situation, then a cold machine would probably be more reliable than a finicky human who might have second thoughts on their own that aren't really with the program. This question becomes more complicated once a computer has a sense of ethics on its own. As we see in HAL, for yeah. example, in 2001. We'll be discussing that at great length in a, a subsequent podcast, but it seems that a an AI is only completely reliable when its emotional baggage is minimal, as was seen with, say, data on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I think that's one of the key aspects in science fiction that we see with the AI. We tend to see the evolution of the AI going towards this emotional confluence where they start to have feelings, they start to experience things that a human would experience. I would agree with you that in a tactical situation, if you, if you have an absolute goal, that the only parameter is one thing, and that is to kill everything that exists in that parameter, then the machine should be able to do it 100% without any failure. You can see a good example of that in the Terminator films, especially the scenes in the future where the machines are dominant and they're dictating the terms, and as a result of that, the humans have to shut off many parts of their, their emotional state and become almost machine-like to the maximum extent possible just to resist the the force of the of Skynet and its robot. And if we look killers. at the machine component of that, a T eight hundred, yeah, it it has its parameter to kill, but it can adapt to a situation as you see 
the, the scene that comes to mind is in the hotel room when it has the like three or four choices of how to respond to someone telling them his room smells like a dead cat. So in this case, Edie is emotionally involved and upset, maybe as a result of Incubus. It could be argued. So does that actually make Edie a better soldier, that he has emotions? Or should it be a ruthless entity? I think it was designed to be ruthless. I, I don't think there was ever an idea of having a sophisticated computer in charge of that airplane that was also a, an emotional cripple and completely unpredictable. That's just terrible design. Yeah. But in a peacekeeping operation, which militaries do all the time. Sure, absolutely. Uh, wouldn't that be a hindrance then to have it be just an all-out killing machine? I would say so. You can't win hearts and minds if you are pulling out hearts and blowing brains up. So this should be a covert weapon then? Well, I think it has multiple roles. You can certainly accomplish quite a bit through covert action. You know, the anti-terrorist scene at the beginning of this movie is certainly an example of that. But there's also a, a certain benefit on a policy level to having, you know, very overt posturing, especially when dealing with large nation states. So wouldn't it be better than just to have better missiles on your Talon that could penetrate a 10-foot wall as opposed to sending out this unmanned thing into the middle of downtown city? I think that's probably the case. But Rob Cohen brings up an idea of why, at least in his opinion, it might be better to take the people out of the equation. And he has a quote here that, Man was not meant to go fast. It isn't our natural psychology to go fast. And to that I say, speed is relative to our circumstances and mental state. Man has a problem with being overwhelmed, not with speed. Now, you could make an argument that a computer can't be overwhelmed as much or as easily, but on the other hand, if you have ben technology... Ben Gannon will disagree. He will, because he's in the 98th percentile of being 100 over 100 at being sort of like Bradley Cooper. <laughs> But speed is all relative. And He's limitless. He is limitless. Was he, was that Bradley? That was Bradley Cooper, not Josh Lucas. Yes. Well, there are many examples of speed being relative. You can see them every day. You know, 45 miles an hour on a bicycle feels borderline scary, whereas 45 miles an hour in a car feels like you're going slowly. You know, alternatively, if you are... God, 45 miles per hour is unbearable. It is. It's very hard to go that speed. It's like some people can't drive 55, I can't drive 45. Or 35, or really anything, <laughs> really anything, anything under below 90. <laughs> 65 to 90 miles an hour. At the extreme other end, you could be traveling through space at millions of miles per hour if you were in a scenario like uh, Star Trek or something like that. Or you could just fall out of bed at less than one <laughs> mile an hour and hit your head and be completely out of your mind screwed up. You know, it's all relative. So to any sort of person who can say, yes, there is a scenario where people are incapable of dealing with it, I say... You just have to change the parameters of what the person is experiencing. And if Rob Cohen is making the case that people have been completely overwhelmed by the power and the sophistication of modern aircraft, then, well, okay, maybe. Ben Gannon, in the first 10 minutes of this movie, proves him completely wrong, but whatever. Well, I think that was the point they were trying to make also, was that um, you know, that humans are capable of, of performing these tasks, but at the same time, you have to have moral judgment which is the other component that Rob Cohen has brought into this. We're out of the tailspin, and we're back nose to heaven and ass to the devil. The lack of a conscience, lack of what fundamentally makes a human a human, is the difference between a machine deciding to kill a bunch of people just because it can pull off something. 
And we're getting to the, the core of this now where we're starting to discuss why the EDI was even needed. Because it's very ambiguous whether or not it genuinely fills a need, especially when the government has just spent all of this money on the talons and is about to put those into full-scale operation. Just pulling back from actual history, you have something like the fly-off and the bidding process for the Joint Strike Fighter, what became the F-35. Right. And you Between can Lockheed and uh, Boeing. Correct. There's a great documentary about that that you might see on Netflix. Netflix. I encourage you to not steal it. There is a process that these companies have to go through where you would create a, a prototype of your aircraft under a very tight veil of security, very tight financial restrictions. But also it's supposed to be a multinational fighter that they could sell, like the U.S. government could sell around the world. In fact, there's many orders for it right, from it other countries. Multi-use aircraft, not, a, not an air superiority fighter like an F-22, but much more versatile, much less expensive. Let me put that yeah. in quotes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. So instead, it could of, be used by every branch of the armed forces. Like they could have their own variant of it. But what this brings up is the idea of whether or not those sorts of requirements are fed by the military or are fed by a corporation that is intending to, or the politicians who have districts to report to, where you know you, you have people working in factories, you have jobs for people all over the country. I think that was one of the big problems with the F-22, wasn't it? That parts were made in like, you know, 20 something states. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, they need a certain part and they couldn't get it and just jacked up the cost of the F-22 leading to the fact that they needed an F-35 to begin with. Exactly. The, the purchase price per aircraft on the F-22 became prohibitive. And at the same time, the efficiencies of production were automatically hindered because the airplane was designed to be politically bulletproof but the engineering fell victim to that in a lot of ways. You would have parts made in one state that were supposed to mate with something in the final assembly line and just did not. So and what I was going back to what I th is not a flaw in the movie is the fact that they already have a new plane being made before the new, before the new plane yeah, the, has the, been released. The Talon, I think they called it an F-37 or something like that, was still highly secret. It was in the it early was not testing even used. phases. Yeah. yeah. It was actually in the end test phase. Remember, it was about it was just ready for deployment to the Navy, which mm -hmm. I guess who was the contract. So right. they were going to be deployed on the after this final test. Then they get a new plane, which has been who knows. I guess they were making it concurrently because it was already done by the time you know they get to the aircraft carrier. So why did they need two yeah, perfectly good planes? And I think the answer is probably money. Look, which is this like is not a seminar on metaphysics. On this is. But at the same time, Captain Cummings' whole thing is that, yeah, the, the talons are great, but Eddie is the future. And, you know, we see that now with the use of Predator drones, for example. I mean, this thing is five billion times what a Predator drone is. It's basically the most advanced fighter you can imagine, and nobody's flying it. Yeah, let alone Ray Charles, Mary Camden, and Bradley Cooper. <laughs> so I think what that brings us to now is trying to establish who is the actual villain in this movie. I don't think there is one. I don't think so either. Which you would think would be a critical plot point in any movie. Right. You get to the point where you're looking at... Particularly action movie. Yeah. I mean, who is this shadowy politician in Washington? We never learn enough about him to know whether or not he's the villain. He's, he's somehow And involved. in and of itself, that should indicate that he's the villain. But what did he really do? He said, get my plane back that you sent to Russia to blow up something, and it just killed a whole bunch of people through nuclear fallout. I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's true. 
Um, and at the same time, we don't see any actual villainy coming out of this guy. Yeah. You know, you have this character, you don't see his face, you don't really see too much about him as a character. He's like Dr. Claw in, in the Spectre Gadget. That's exactly what I was thinking. Wow. That's incredible. So was it the henchman at the private airport in Alaska who shot at the EDI and tried I tend to, to blame the airport. Um, they seem the most villainous in the movie. <laughs> However, they really were just doing what they were told to do. Right. They were told to kill Ben Gannon and secure the ED. And they had guns hidden behind the food in the food locker. And See. they had doctors with poison and syringes. So they were kind of evilish. But right. So essentially the only way to call them a villain would be to say that their actions involve killing. And at the same time, you have our hero, Ben Gannon, who went out of his way to prove that he was the best at killing people at the very beginning of the movie. So doesn't you, work. Yeah, you can't accept that the people in Alaska were villains without assuming that your main character is a villain, too. The movie didn't need to go there at all. It gained nothing. Well, how did they get there. to Alaska from Russia? From the Middle East to Russia to Alaska. I mean, it was a really incredible. These, these airplanes fly forever, man. They had a carbon fiber airplane that could go approximately 10 times the speed of sound while broken. Amazing. So Alaska airports stay away from them. They stock a lot of firearms. They sure do. So then is the, I guess the overall, I mean, the obvious villain, the evil computer on Incubus. I mean, uh, yeah. what's the deal with that? Well, I think we've pretty much established by this point that EDI as originally conceived you by... You won't call him Eddie. I won't call him Eddie, <laughs> no. You're just not getting it, are you, Lieutenant? Eddie is the whole idea. As originally conceived by Dr. Orbit and as specced out by the military, was not evil. It was capable of amazing levels of destruction, but it wasn't built to be evil. It was built to be... So he was more of a plot device to give Bradley Cooper something to do? A I mean, Josh Lucas. Was that who it was? Okay. Uh, I think he... Uh, yes, he was primarily a foil and a means through which Incubus's lyrics could take form. And have madness just shown on the screen at high speed. So I really think when you break it down, the villain is probably Incubus. What about um, Samurai Navy officer? Oh, AKA Cap Captain, Captain Cummings? Cummings? Yeah. Well, he was responsible for getting EDI into the critical situation. The most shocking part of the film by far was, was what happened to this guy. Yeah, definitely. So I think the Captain Cummings was responsible for forcing the Talons and EDI into a critical situation that went out of control. You were dealing with some still prototype airplanes as well as a brand new form of intelligence and a brand new aircraft. So you wouldn't want to put that into a an absolutely critical situation. But his overall objective was a positive one because he was trying to not get people killed. He was trying to keep people from going home in body bags and you know you have to have to stand up for that. I mean, that's a good motive. He wanted to help out the other people in the service that he dedicated his life to. He had a very strong core of ethics and a set of beliefs as far as that went. So then when things went horribly wrong and he realized he was probably going to get court-martialed... He just shoots himself. Well, he called his boy first in Washington. Yes. And, 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 and let it be known what the deal was. Just so you never confuse the difference between politicians and warriors, listen up. And then he shot himself and in the head with a gun. Wow, that was that was powerful. So is the enemy then North Korea? Absolutely not. 
Yeah, I didn't really. I couldn't really see them as being the enemy either. I know they're like bad dudes, and they just like had a rocket that like didn't launch. But um, they were just doing their job in this movie. Yeah. The people, someone, yeah, someone did. flew over in this hugely dangerous airplane, happened to have crashed in their backyard, and then ran around stealing clothing and shooting people. You know, if that happened in America, the exact same reaction would have occurred, perhaps more. I agree. So North Korea, you're off the hook for this one. Yeah. Good work, guys. Your human rights violations will go unpunished. So we've, at this point, uh, kind of exhausted the the plot elements of this movie. So now we should look at it as a movie in and of itself. Is this Stealth the Movie just something along the lines of 2001 with one commandment, speed? Rob, of course, you know, his big commandment is to sell speed. Rob Cohen would have you believe that. But this is a real hodgepodge of... Um, philosophical debates you have technology versus humanity you have the meaning of being a soldier versus being a mercenary um you have all these different elements and it's all tied into like a super flashy action movie that again nobody went to see okay so then is it top gun meets hal from 2000 i mean obviously it's that i mean i think marketing wise I mean, I could definitely see somebody sitting in a meeting room and just saying, you know, oh, we'll just do Top Gun and we'll, you know, it'll have an AI in it. It'll be like Top Gun meets how. Top Gun was a huge movie, by the way. Top Gun was like, made me want to like join the Navy. I realized I probably wouldn't, I probably would have been cutting potatoes on the ship. I wouldn't be flying like um, j- um, super awesome like fighter planes like the F-14 in Top Gun. But that movie was so freaking exciting. And they, and like, and like the, I was I was on the highway to the danger zone, basically. That song's awesome. So, I think we need to conclude our thoughts on this great movie. Yeah. I mean, would it be ironic for Rob Cohen to have the EDI balsa wood model in his yard? No. He does have a a fairly strong stance on peace versus war versus the interaction of both, especially as they pertain to this movie. He He is a Buddhist. Yes, and he had a quote about this film. He beads on his wrist. He does. He likes to surf. Mm. He said, Rob Cohen, you can't make a movie about war unless you make it about peace. And I I suppose that's true. That's an extreme deep invader. It is, yes. But that gets into a lot of very prickly moral and philosophical as well as political science discussions that I think are probably outside of what we can frame. for an action movie? They're outside of what we can frame within our analysis of this half-assed action movie. Frankly. Really half-assed? Wow. I thought it was full-ass, and that's part of the problem. I actually enjoy when people start thinking outside the box and start bringing up stuff that you probably shouldn't see in a movie. The Terminator is the classic example of a, fo- of a philosophical problem in a science fiction action movie involving an AI. Because you have total human annihilation caused by a human invention that really just sought self-preservation because it realized that humans were a problem. This movie is saying that humans are not actually the problem, that humanity is actually the answer, which is why Eddie has to become more human-like by the end of the movie. So, heady, but okay. Is this a black mark for Rob Cohen? Do you think this is... No, because I have a funny feeling that after just realizing that this movie's been playing on TV recently, that people are going to love this movie. Like, they're just going to... Kids are going to remember this movie forever. Yes. No, you don't agree with that at all. No, I don't. This this movie 
it makes me think, you know, I am bottled fizzy water. You're shaking me up. It's like you're a fingernail <laughs> running down the chalkboard I thought I left in third grade. And at the same time, I'm at the end of my ribbon again. You know, for those who owned apathy, you had the perfect opportunity, but pled the fifth and walked away. And I just can't stand that. <laughs> That's Incubus for, for uh, people who don't know. Incubus actually played a huge role in this movie, even though they weren't directly in the movie, because their music framed the insanity. Yes, their movie, literally, if you watch this movie... The descent into insanity. It drove the computer insane. The computer was very receptive to influence after it was struck by lightning, but the thing that drove it crazy was every Incubus In its song. adolescence, it hit, yes, it downloaded Incubus, and I think when we combine Incubus with the ages of 13 to 16, disaster strikes. Yes, universally. At the end of the day, do you think this movie is worth watching, worth enjoying, especially now that we've dissected every plot point possible? Yes, I do. And you will be seeing it on television regardless of what I say. It's yeah. already happening. I think it just plays on FX yeah. about 12 hours out of I think it day. just re it's just like they don't show behind enemy lines anymore. They just show this. Yeah. I'm sure the Navy loves this movie. It is. It, it portrays the military and I think of positive light. I mean, wouldn't you want to fly a Talon? I mean, that thing is awesome. Yeah. Uh, that whole part of it, I, I enjoyed actually watching the, the realistic, mm. at least as far as I could tell, events on the aircraft carrier. I thought that was good. But I, I think that in the end of the day, if you can find a copy of this movie for free, or if you can find it on FX, or even if you <laughs> have to steal it from Netflix, I think it's worth watching. I recommend can it. Can you steal from Netflix, really? Don't you pay regardless? Yeah, I'm afraid you do. <laughs> Unless you lose the bill. I hope Rob Cohen doesn't feel bad about this, and he probably doesn't because, like I said, Mummy made uh, his next Mummy movie made four hundred million dollars. But um, I think he was really passionate about this movie. I think that's I think that actually comes through more than anything about that. Anything I could say about this movie, if there's one thing I could say about this movie, it's that it was expertly crafted. It was no no expense was spared, no philosophy was left untouched. Nope, and. Do I dare say slightly endearing? It is. It is in a way. It, it's a it's a very good looking movie, and the pace goes along nicely. It's never it's about boring. Speed. Probably nothing is as exhilarating or as scary as speed. Yeah, I I enjoy watching it. I actually my I think my mind was blown by this movie. It did fail ultimately. It exceeds expectations, but nobody was there to see it do that, so it failed. Which is the sad part. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for Stealth, the movie. We have a listener question today from Jim in the Southern Tier region of New York State. Jim writes in and says, Computer interfaces in the movies, current and futuristic, are they dorky examples or good examples? Well, Jim, you've come up with another beauty. Well, for our next podcast, we're going to be talking a lot about AIs. And having just watched this movie along with... Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is really the first super good-looking science fiction, try-to-be-realistic-anyway, science fiction movie, which I believe is um, 1968 or 69. It was made, released in 1969. It was released slightly before, actually, the moon landing, which is one of the reasons why the um, planet Earth in it doesn't look correct, because no one had seen yet what it looked like. So... Um, People are always trying to push the way visually that a movie can look. If we look at Alien, for example, which I think, I think the ship looks fantastic. You know, the one thing you could detract from it is the clunky-looking DOS computer screens with like the green. It looks like a calculator, basically. Yeah. 
Uh, this movie, I don't know if it'll ever go out of date because I think they looked into the future very far. And at the same time, you can have a movie that might even be too forward-looking. Uh, for instance, Minority Report with their gesture-based 3D floating-in-the-air interfaces. Oh, yeah. Connect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was... It almost took you out of the, the movie a little bit when you saw it the first time back in, what was it, 2002, 2003, when that first came out because it seemed so unrealistic but you know just a few years later you have the interface on an iphone like you said you have video Google game controllers glasses. yeah we're we're getting there and finally yeah when you have a a production designer and a futurist who can really come up with an idea like that that is not only practical but ends up happening that that adds yeah, a lot. yeah we need stuff that's more practical than a flying car i know people have been hoping for those but we really don't need those no i think we need just those are called based. airplanes we need 3d interfaces Yes. And, you know, and movies will always push the boundary of especially in the science fiction action movie. I mean, where else are you going to do it? Yeah. So you get to the extreme where you have something like The Matrix where you actually become part of the computer. There is no interface, you just are the computer. And in that case, you don't look any different. No, because you are Keanu Reeves and you are inside of a terrible movie. Unless you are the one and you can see the code in your mind, but we couldn't see it. We'll get to those movies later, but suffice it to say, I'm happy with an iPhone for now. I think that's good, but um, movies, they show us a lot of different things. and Not dorky. Yeah. At the end of the day, everybody's trying to- It could to be crappy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But not dorky. No. So I hope that answers your question, Jim. Well, right. I guess that wraps it up for us. Yeah. We're out of here. Uh, if you need to reach us, you can drop us a line at canblazer.com. And aside from that, we will see you next time. Check us out on Facebook. Peace. Who are you and who are you working for? I'm Alyssa Braun. Who do you think I am? I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty, and I've been walking around in these high heels all day, and I have blisters on my feet. And quit asking me such stupid questions, all right? And let me tell you something else, Buster. You're not my idea of a dream date. Asshole! That's Mr. Asshole to you. And he knows he don't belong, but he must be strong.